Amen. Uh, this time, uh, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Kids Church this morning. <clears throat> As we continue to walk through the book of 2 Samuel, we come to a, a very pivotal uh, point in the story of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11 was uh, it's probably one of the most... Uh, both discouraging and encouraging passages in all of Scripture uh, because we see uh, the king, the covenant king, acting upon his impulses, acting upon uh, his own desires for the fulfillment of his flesh. And then we see that God continues to pursue David even in the midst of his sin. And so, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 this morning. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said, There were two men in the city, the rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat off his bread and drink his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things you like many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword and the, the sword of the son of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and from your own household. And I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion. For he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it in secret. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed you have done, given the occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, that this child also that is born to you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace continues to pursue us. Lord, may we see your grace 
in the discipline of David. May we see Jesus high and exalted. And may we make application in our own lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if we back up to chapter 11 for just a moment, I want to remind us of where we were in the text. As we get to chapter 9 and chapter 10, we see David as the covenant king. We see David as as the king who had uh, demonstrated grace and mercy to the the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth, the, the son who was lame. We see David demonstrating compassion and grace to the sons of Ammon as he as he sends a a ambassador to console the the prince in the wake of his father's death we see david demonstrating grace and compassion and then in chapter 11 we see the duality of man we see that david is a covenant king that david is gracious and kind and compassionate and loving and then we also see that david is a liar that david is a thief that david is an adulterer that david is a murderer that david is both and that he is both the covenant king the man after god's own heart and a lying thieving adultering murderer and in chapter 11 we remember that god is completely absent in the entire chapter until the very last verse david Stayed home from war. David saw Bathsheba. David lusted after Bathsheba. David sent to inquire about Bathsheba. David sends for Bathsheba. Bathsheba comes to David's house. Bathsheba, David lies with Bathsheba. Bathsheba consent, uh, uh, conceives a child. Then David sends for Uriah. Then Uriah goes back to war. Then David sends for Joab. And then David sends message, or I'm sorry, sends for a messenger to send to Joab the, the, plot to kill Uriah, then Uriah is killed and David brings Bathsheba into his house and and makes her his wife. And we see all of these action items in chapter 11 and in everything there there is no commentary on God's position until the very last verse in chapter 11 when it says that David had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And I want to point out that in chapter 11... The Hebrew word to send, Selah, is there 12 times. David sends for Bathsheba. Bathsheba sends a message to David. David sends a message to Joab. Joab sends a message back to David. David sends Uriah, I'm sorry, Joab sends Uriah to the front lines. We see this, this verb to send occur 12 times. All of the action is taking place by David. And chapter 11, we get the idea and we get the, the perspective that God is a passive onlooker. That God is sitting on the sideline just observing and watching everything that, that, that is going on as if God is, is powerless. But I want us to be cautious to see God as a passive onlooker in our lives. Oftentimes in our lives we, we have the illusion, and that was the message of last week's message, uh, the theme of last week's message is that we have the illusion that we're the ones in control. 
That we are controlling our, our destiny. That we are controlling uh, what, what happens in our lives. And forgetting that we serve a sovereign God who is ultimately in control. And so I want us to, I want us to temper our, our temptation to see God as a passive onlooker. And understand that 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 tells us that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. That God is aware of everything. That God is not only aware of everything, but the scripture tells us that God is the orchestrator and the, and the ordainer of everything. And so we understand that while the text may give the, may give the perspective that God is the passive onlooker, we begin chapter 12, and I want us to notice how chapter 12 begins, and I believe it begins this way intentionally. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember how I told you that in chapter 11, the, the verb, the Hebrew verb, Selah, to send, was there 12 times. And it was always David sending, Uriah sending, uh, Bathsheba sending, Joab sending. Everybody else was in control. Everybody else was doing the action. And look how chapter 12 begins. Then the Lord sent. God responds. God is not a, a passive onlooker. God is not a, a, a God who sits on the sideline and allows us to, to live our lives without directly intervening in our lives. In chapter 12, God sends Nathan. And I want us to understand that God refuses to allow David to continue to wallow and live in his sin. Now, notice also, God does not intercede. God, God allows David to, to indulge the desires of his flesh. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, that God will give us over to the depravity of our heart. God will give us over to our sin because he understands as a loving father that sometimes we need to find out the hard way, right? I was one of those kids uh, who needed to find out the hard way. I was, still am one of those kids who needs to find out the hard way. I remember uh, whenever we were, uh, whenever I was a young, young child, I, I probably couldn't have been older than four or five years old. Uh, we went crabbing in Grand Isle. And mom told me, she said, don't go in the water without shoes on. You know, she said, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to step on something, a crab's going to pinch you, you it, it's going to be bad. Don't go in the water. Well, mom didn't know anything, right? You know, I, I was, it was fine. I'd been to the beach before. I knew how to walk in the water without my shoes on. I didn't want to go. I mean, who wants to walk in the beach with shoes on, right? That's, that's not fun. And so I took my shoes off and I went in the water. And sure enough, I didn't get past ankle deep and I had cut myself or got, got, got stepped on something. And I was, and my, my toes were all bleeding. And, and what did mom and dad say? I told you don't go in the water without shoes on. Well, God gives us clear warnings in his text, but 
He allows us, He allows us to make our decisions. He allows us to take our shoes off and walk in the water, even though He tells us not to. He told David, He has given us clear instructions in His Word, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit murder. He warned David. He said, Do not do these things. I am the Lord your God who loves you, and I've given you these, these commandments to protect you and to provide for you because I care for you. And David said, Yeah, I think I'm going to do it my way. And so God allowed him to do it his way. But I want us to see that God's grace pursued David. David, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him. God refuses to allow us to wallow and become comfortable in our sin. He pursues us with his great. Hebrews 12, flip over there if you will. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 7 and 8. One of the most comforting passages in all the New Testament to me is here in Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. The author says, It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so when I experience the discipline of the Lord, whenever I experience God's grace through His discipline, it is simultaneously both difficult and comforting for me at the same time. Whenever, whenever God in His grace sends discipline, it is, a, in, it is a reminder that God refuses to leave me in my sin, that God refuses to allow me to wallow in my sin. Now, I want to remind us that David had completely gotten away with everything. To the unsuspecting eye, David had comforted. He had become, in, in, in many, uh, many commentaries, David had become that kinsman redeemer for Bathsheba because her, son, her uh, husband had been killed in battle. And so David was the gracious king who took in this widow and cared for her and made her his wife after one of his, one of his soldiers, one of his, his fighting men had died protecting the kingdom. And so David graciously reaches out to Bathsheba and cares for this widow. But we know that that's not what happened. David had gotten away with his ruse. David had gotten away with his plan. And he had successfully deceived everyone in the kingdom. But he had not deceived God. Make no mistake about it, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. We will never be able to deceive our great and omniscient, omnipotent God. I also want us to know that grace is not niceness. So many times we, we understand grace through our own perspective and we fail to see that grace is not niceness. God in His grace sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and we get the benefit of grace. But I want us to understand that a very real aspect of grace was the wrath of God that was poured out from heaven on the Son of God. Grace is not niceness. And for us to understand the grace of God, we must understand that as God pours out His discipline on us, that is an aspect of His grace. He could leave us and let us wallow in sin and let us suffer the consequences of sin and let us endure the hardships and the pain and the scars and all that come along with sin. But God in His grace pursues us and, and, and does not allow us to wallow in our sin. 
as a parent, I see this. As a parent, I see, you know what? I can let my kids continue to make the same mistake after same mistake after same mistake. And I can let them continue to walk down that path. But it is a loving, kind act of benevolence for me to bring them in. Lovingly, kindly discipline them. Correct their paths. And encourage them on their way. Grace is not niceness. In His grace... God exposes the sin of David. Now, as we look at this, God acts. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan doesn't come in, guns a-blazing. What does he do? He comes in and he lays a circumstance and lays a a situation before David. Now I want us to understand, David as the king would serve as the judge. David as the king would serve as the judge. He would serve as essentially the judge, jury, and executioner because he was the monarch. And so Nathan brings this circumstance to David and he tells them a story. Now it doesn't tell us that that David, uh, uh, the scripture doesn't tell us that this was a parable. It doesn't tell us that David heard this as a parable. In fact, As far as David was aware, this was a real circumstance, a real situation that had taken place in the kingdom. And Nathan was bringing this before David's, uh, bringing this before David's throne, bringing this before the king as a, what do we do in this situation? And so David, I'm sorry, Nathan tells the story of a rich man who has everything he could possibly have and a poor man who has one small lamb. And the rich man, whenever Traveler came to David's, I'm sorry, to the rich man's house that the rich man went and he stole the ewe lamb or he took the ewe lamb of the poor man and he slaughtered it and he served it to his guest. And the scripture tells us, the scripture tells us in verse 5 that David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. It's interesting. The law for David's sin demanded death. The judgment for stealing livestock was not death. The penalty for stealing livestock was not death. But The action was so despicable and so despised, David, unbeknownst to himself, pronounces judgment upon himself and pronounces an even harsher judgment upon the man, upon the man who had stolen the ewe lamb, than David would receive himself. I want to look at, for just a few moments, the nature of sin, because I think in this passage, the nature of sin is, is exposed, and I think all too often in our, in our New Testament understanding of grace that we fail to, to fully understand the true nature of sin. First of all, we understand that the nature of sin is that it is, in a very real way, enjoyable for a season. In fact, the scripture, uh, uh, the scripture tells us in Hebrews as it's talking about Moses, it tells us that, that Moses forsook 
the enjoyment of being the son of Pharaoh, that, that, that he forfeited the enjoyment of sin for a season in order that God may use him for great things. But we're aware that, that sin has an enjoyable aspect to it. Amen? I mean, we all know that, you know what, if, if, if sin wasn't enjoyable, if there wasn't a, a, an appealing aspect to it, then we wouldn't struggle with it so much. You know, there is, there is a, an, an enticement aspect to it, but it is indeed short-lived. It, it's temporal. It is, it is, it is temporary. It is, it is for a season. And the end thereof, we understand that sin destroys completely and completely destroys. I want us to notice that after this, after this moment of sin in David's life, the scripture tells us that the sword would never depart from the house of David. Now this is the same man whom God had said, you are the man after God's own heart. You are the covenant king. You are, you are the, the lineage through whom I will, I will bring about the Messiah. It is the line of David that God has chosen to bless the world. But God also says your sin carries with it consequence. Sin destroys completely and completely destroys. I also want us to notice that sin not only affects David, but affects everyone else in his life. The scripture tells us, if you look at the text, go to the text, look at verse uh, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. So not only is it going to affect David, it's going to affect David's sons and David's grandsons and David's great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons and great-great-great-grandsons and all of the household of David. Verse 10. For you have become... For you have, uh, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, so it has affected Uriah. Uriah has been killed. Uriah's mother is mourning the loss of her son. Uriah's wife is mourning the loss of her husband. Uriah's children are mourning the loss of their father. The scripture also tells us in chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 11, that not only was Uriah destroyed and was Uriah killed in the raid of the Ammonites, but there were many other soldiers that died. Because it would have looked, it would have looked strange to send Uriah out and only have Uriah killed. So Joab sent Uriah along with the whole army out and there were many other Israelites that fell at the swords of the house of Ammon. And so not only was Uriah killed by David's sin and David's deceit, but there were other soldiers who was killed in an effort to cover up David's sin. So you had other husbands that were killed. You had other wives that mourned. You had other sons that mourned the loss of their father. You had other daughters that mourned the loss of their father. You had other moms that mourned the loss of their son and fathers that mourned the loss of their son. And so you see that your sin does not affect only you. We have this idea that, 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 you know what, it's my decision, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want, and we fail to realize the implication that our sin affects a great deal of people around us, that we do not live in a vacuum and we do not sin in a vacuum, but our sin affects everyone around us. The nature of sin is that it destroys completely and completely destroys. The nature of sin is that it always affects others.
And I want us to notice as God points out David's sin, he does so in light of his own faithfulness. Look at verse Look at verse 7 and 8. Nathan said to David, You are this man. You are the man who has stolen this ewe lamb. You are the man who has stolen his neighbor's husband. You are, I'm sorry, his neighbor's wife. You are the man who has laid with his neighbor's wife, who has committed adultery, committed covetousness, committed murder. You are this man. And he does so in light of his continued faithfulness. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. It is I who gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. I want us to understand that God gave David his position. God gave David his protection. Remember whenever Saul continued to pursue David's life, who was it that protected David from the hand of Saul? God. Even whenever David took his protection into his own hands and said, God, you can no longer protect me here in Israel. I'm going to flee to Philistia so that I can protect myself. Who was it that protected David while he was in Philistia? It was God. Not only did God give David his position as king, not only did God protect David from the hand of Saul, but God gave David provision. He continued to provide for him. He gave him wives. He gave him children. He gave him material possessions. And under the reign of David, the kingdom of Israel would be at the height of its glory. Not only did he give him his position, his protection, but he gave him privilege. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And he gave him the promise of the covenant king. You'll be my king. And someone from the house of David will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Yet David, the scripture says, despised God's word. It wasn't enough. And so, I want to ask us this morning, are we content with what God has given us? Or is it not enough? Now I understand none of you are kings. I understand none of you are sitting on the throne. But are we not recipients of God's grace in an exponential way? Do we not have more than we could ever need and ever want? And yet, we're still unsatisfied. It's interesting, Henry Rockefeller at the height of his wealth was asked, how much money is enough money? You know what his response was? Just a little bit more. I feel like in our lives, we live and are lavished upon. God could say to us, we could take verse 7 and 8, and we could say that Nathan said to Preston, It is I who have anointed you and given you the position. It is I who delivered you from the hands of your enemies. It is I who have given 
all of this into your hands. I have given you, not Israel and Judah, but I have given you this church. I've given you this ministry. I've given you all of that that I have poured out. I've given you this job. I've given you this family. And if that were too little, I would have added to you even more. And yet you have despised my name. And you have poured contempt on my name. It's interesting that whenever David is confronted with his sin, and we'll look at this next week in more detail, but David's response to the confrontation of sin flies in the face of the human condition. I know if somebody comes to me and says, you are that man, Immediate, my immediate response is to defend myself. My immediate response is to justify my actions. My immediate response is to cover up my, my, my sin because that is the, that is the human condition. Whenever Adam and Eve were caught in the Garden of Eden, whenever, whenever they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their response was to clothe themselves with the fig trees from all around them. And they, 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 they sowed for themselves the fig leaves and they clothed themselves. And, and God the Son was walking in the cool of the Eden and He called out to, to Adam and Eve and He said, Where are you? He knew where they were. He wanted to see what their response would be. And they respond, they hid from God. And they said, he, they, they came out and they were clothed and, and He said, Why are you clothed? And they said, Well, we realized we were naked and we were ashamed. God said, who told you that you were naked? Immediately they begin to to cover up, they begin to justify, they begin to, to rationalize their sin. But notice David's response. In verse 11, I'm sorry. In verse 9. Why have you despised the Lord doing what is evil? You have struck down your eye the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the swords of Ammon. And then God begins to, to explain what will be the judgment of God. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David understood that justice demanded death. That his action, David, remember, David was the king. David was the judge. David had sat in the, in the, in the, on the courtroom. He had sat in the throne of the judge and he had dispensed justice for this very action before. And as David sits as the judge and pronounces judgment, David understands the, the law. And David understands the Levitical law. David understands that the consequence for adultery and murder, that that this is a capital crime, and that the consequence for that capital crime is his own death. And David stands and says, I have sinned against the Lord, understanding what the judgment would be. But God pours out grace upon David. And notice, notice what the text tells us. As God is pouring out judgment, as God is saying, the sword shall not depart from your house, you will, you will, you will experience this and this and this and this because of the consequences of your sin. This is the judgment. I want us to look at the text in verse 13. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. David understood the consequence was death and immediately David receives grace. 
And then we see verse 14. And verse 14 ought to perplex us. Verse 14 ought to confuse us. Because who was the one who sinned? David. Who was the one who should die? David. And in verse 14, what happens? However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. The son of David dies. That ought to confuse us. We ought to have a a visceral, emotional response to that passage. We ought to say, that's not fair. Right? Do do, do any of you read this and say, that poor, innocent, innocent child, that that, that infant child, had no, it, it had no sin. It didn't do anything wrong. And that child dies? That's not fair. Am I the only one that has that emotional reaction? I am. I I, I read this and I'm thinking, well, David was the bum. David was the liar. David was the thief. David was the adulterer. David was the murderer. And here is this innocent infant son. And he dies. How is that fair? How is that just? As I was reading this passage this week and studying it, pouring over it, for the first time, I saw the consequences of sin is death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It tells us, Consequence of sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if you skip down to verse 27 or 28, it says, And as much as is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, shall appear a second time for the salvation with reference to sin of those who eagerly await Him. And I was reading this passage in 2 Samuel, and it almost seems as if the son of David was a substitute for David's sin. That the son of David died the death that David should die. And it reminded me of another son of David that was even more innocent than that infant son who was born to Bathsheba. As God the Son from the lineage of David was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, born in a stable, visited by shepherds and magi, lived a sinless life. As that son of David was brought before Pilate in a ruse and trumped up charges as he was sentenced to die the death you and I deserved. 
this same son of David died the death David deserved. The true son of David died the death you and I deserve. And as he hung upon the cross, he looked out that and he looked out at the crowd and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as he hung upon the cross, he said, it is finished. The sin debt is paid in full. And as I read this passage for the first time, I saw the foreshadowing of the son of David dying for the sins of David. And I was reminded that the son of David, the true son of David, Jesus died the death that I deserve to die. He was buried in a grave that I deserve to be buried in. And he rose from the grave, guaranteeing that I, if I place my faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, that I too can experience the resurrection of Christ. So as we read this passage, as we see this, I want us to see that God pursues us with His grace. He refuses to leave us in our sin. And even whenever we deserve to die, He says, I will take your place. Even though you deserve the consequences of the sin that you've committed, I will take your place because I love you. This morning I pray that you will see God's grace in every aspect of your life. Not only in the blessings, but in the discipline in your life. In the hard times. When God is revealing to you that I love you and I refuse to leave you where you are. Let's pray. God, as your grace pursues us, there are times in our lives when we don't want to be pursued. There are times in our lives whenever we would rather wallow in our sin, yet you refuse to leave us there. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. God's word says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If God is pursuing you by his grace, if he is refusing to leave you in your sin, if he is refusing to allow you to wallow and to suffer, continue to suffer the consequences of your own decisions and your own choices, if he is pursuing you by by his grace, may you run to the Father. May you run to the God of grace because He loves you. Maybe for the very first time you realize that you deserve the consequences of your sin. But for the first time in your life you realize that Jesus paid the penalty for you. Maybe this morning for the very first time you realize that God loves you and sent His Son to die for you. If that's you, I'll invite you to come. Or maybe you simply need to come to this altar and get on your face before God. Whatever it is the Lord is speaking to your heart during this time of invitation, may you find yourself obedient. God, we thank You for Your grace that's given to us in Jesus. And we ask that you would have your freedom in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.